Hello, everyone, and welcome to Friend Diagram. This is the podcast where two friends catch up and find common ground between their favorite media. I'm Remy. I'm Kat. And today we will be discussing the films High Life and Knock at the Cabin. Warning, spoilers ahead. Hi, Remy. Hey, Kat. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I don't know what my, like, light, fluffy topic for the week is going to be. Mmm. <laughs> I have one. I saw a man walking a turtle on a leash in Central Park today. <laughs> no, man, you it was didn't. Good. I did. <laughs> was it an animal actor? Do you think? No, I think oh, it no. was just a man and his turtle. <laughs> <laughs> Can you befriend him? I really wanted to take a picture, but I didn't want to seem rude. Yeah. And so I just kind of like stared at I stared at them as I walked by and then also watched them over my shoulder yeah. as I walked. <laughs> Who can past. blame you? So I could just take in more cuz like watching the turtle move around. Well, How big was it? Big? He was tortoise size? Not tortoise okay. size, but large for a turtle. Hmm. He was nearly a foot long, I would say. He looked kind of like a painted turtle. Aww. So, you know, the kind you would see in a in a pond. Oh. And he was he was moving and grooving on that leash. He looked like he was having a good time. Oh my god. You should tell him about Catfish Cove. I should. <laughs> it's a little sweet. I should have talked to him. I was too shy. Maybe if I see him again. This was the, my first time seeing him and I was like, I would definitely remember. Yeah. A man walking a turtle. <laughs> Um, wow, I wonder yeah. if pet turtles need constant exercise like that. Like, I've never met anyone that had a pet turtle, so I don't really know yeah, if that's I, like some kind of normal care that you should give a pet turtle. I know, I can't say I'm an expert on pet turtles. Was I it in a were, harness? It like the leash collar part was more like a belt, so it went around his shell midsection <laughs> rather than the neck which i think was yes. a good move yes that's very humane <laughs> yeah. for sure <laughs> oh my god yeah i think turtles were like not legal as pets in pennsylvania when i was growing up because they can oh. have salmonella oh yeah so i think they were like not authorized so i i oh. also didn't know anyone with pet turtle I just wish I could have been there for that. That would have totally made my day. Me too. I was hearing about so, it made my day. I was so puzzled <laughs> when they were like in the distance because uh -huh. I could see a man with a leash in his hand <laughs> leaning to something on the ground <laughs> that was quite flat for like a dog <laughs> or a cat. I've seen people walking cats in the park. Yeah, for sure. And I was like, "What's wrong with that dog? Why is it so flat?" <laughs> What's happening? And then I got up and I was like, oh, phew, it's just a turtle. Everything's fine. <laughs> oh, my God. I love that so much. Yeah. I'll let you know if I see him again. Please. Oh, please. <laughs> I need to know what his name is. Not the man, the turtle. Yeah. His, their name is, I suppose, is a more proper way to address it. Mm -hmm. Um. Oh, my God. I've got to know. What a mystery. What a mysterious yeah. man. How old was this man? 
like middle age, I okay. would say. That's mm-hmm. what I was picturing, but it would have been, I don't know. It would have been different either way, older yeah. or younger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the most exciting things that happened last week is that Scott started reading Ninth House, or he started Ooh. listening to it on audiobook, mm-hmm. and he is thoroughly enjoying it. And it's been very fun yeah. to like have conversations while he like listens to it. And I've been listening to bits and pieces for date night the other day we like zoomed and he played the audio over zoom and we like had a little relaxing night listening to ninth house and it was really nice that's cool yeah it's fun to relive that way that's funny i was telling you the other day that will is reading tomorrow and tomorrow yes. and tomorrow per my wreck mm-hmm. and um he doesn't save his thoughts as notes he just either (laughs) randomly texts them to me with Uh no context whatsoever or (laughs) just kind of walks into the room and just announces an idea like do you think sam's foot is a metaphor for the grief over his mother's death (laughs) and i'll have to be like what the fuck is he talking about I love that. And then I'll be like, oh, yeah. I think that's I'm a so good insight. I'm so glad he's liking it. That's awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Me too. I can't wait to hear his takes on it. Yeah. What? Where is he at? I n- just know that he has not yet reached NPC. Oh, okay. Huh. That chapter. Man. I know. I think that's going to be a tough read on the subway. <laughs> oh, no. You've got to warn him. Don't let him read it on the subway. That's the only place he reads. It's really? going to be on the subway. Oh. Does he not get, like, motion sick? No, I guess not. I could never do it. Does he sit with his, like, knees facing? I don't know exactly how the subway is. Are there seats where your knees face forward? Or it are depends. they all? It depends on the car. Mm. Um, they're all different because they're all from different eras like some are really old and there's like multiple angles that seats face some are just like straight up along the sides if it's a newer car um so it completely varies yeah i hate when my knees aren't facing the direction i'm going i get Mm -hmm. like really ill (laughs) very ill very quickly oh well good luck to him Mm -hmm. (laughs) also is the subway ride long enough to even make it through mpc because i would only read that in one sitting i wouldn't be able to stop and then come back to that kind of sadness i don't think it's long enough Mm -hmm. no i had to like put down the book multiple times during that chapter (laughs) because i could no longer see the Uh book there were too many tears in my eyes and i was like reading on my back too and they were just like screaming (laughs) down Yeah, this is ridiculous. Yeah, we'll see what happens. He's pretty stoic generally, so I think he can take it. (laughs) Uh, I mean, he wouldn't be the first to cry on a subway, so. (sighs) Of course not. Should you have a good week other than the turtle? I mean, the turtle was a bonus. Yeah, it was an okay week. I joined Letterboxd. Yes, you did. Yes, definitely go give Remy Friend a follow. Yeah, you can follow me at Remy underscore Friend. That's Friend with two N's. And you can see all of the movies I'm watching and what 
how many stars I'm giving them, and I'm trying to fill in a few short reviews, and, you know. I'm, I'm shocked at your ability to, like, evenly distribute your movies. Like, you have a very unbiased rating system, I feel like. You try to yeah. hit, like, all of the stars. I'm mm. the kind of person where, like, everything's above three stars, and three stars is an insult to a film for me. Oh, yeah. I have, like, a little bit of a positive skew in my rating system, mm-hmm. A, because I deliberately avoid movies that I'm certain I will not like. Mm-hmm. Like, I, it's not my job to watch every movie like it is for, like, a film critic, mm-hmm. so I'm generally surprised if I'm rating something really low. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, Letterboxd uses a five-star rating scheme mm-hmm. where you can use half stars. So there's I do like ten, that. 10 degrees of freedom, which is nice. Um, and so, but I kind of established th- three stars as my middle ground when mm-hmm. it really should have been 2.5. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like... Yeah, three stars is like, it's fine, mm-hmm. <laughs> essentially. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's where, that's the general schema I'm operating under. Yeah, I have a hard time with that. I just love everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's much better than hating everything. That's true. So what did you bring this week? This week, I am going to be talking about the movie High Life. It's a 2018 film written and directed by Claire Denis, and it stars Rob Pattinson, Juliette Binoche, Andre 3000, and Mia Goth. Shout out again to Mia Goth. Oh, yeah. I two weeks she in a row. That. <laughs> Is that why you watched it? Because you're on Mia Goth. No, <laughs> I actually was completely surprised when she showed up. I was like, hey, it's Mia Goth. <laughs> yeah, I forgot she was in that. It was completely... Um, coincidental. It's funny because I watched it for the first time this week, even though it's something that has been on my radar for a while, uh, something I figured I would like, but it's been on Showtime for some some time now, so mm-hmm. I haven't been able to watch it. And for some reason, I got the Showtime plug-in on Prime Video. I did like the week oh. trial, mm-hmm. and then fucked it and let it lapse so now I have a month of showtime and so I was like fuck it I'm watching all these movies Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh high life was one of the first on the list because they have like a lot of really good movies somehow I think all of the the really good films that Netflix is dropping the ball on and letting them elapse Mm -hmm. uh they're like going to showtime and places like that Mm because there's like a long list that I want to watch from them but anyway that's why I watched it this week, and I absolutely loved it. I It's very much a film that's hard to describe why I love it, but immediately the moment I started watching it, I was like, this is my kind of film. This mm-hmm. is my shit. And the very surface-level plot synopsis is that the film is following the crew of an experimental space exploration mission that is trying to reach the nearest black hole to Earth. And so this is very much a sci-fi film, but it's not your 
conventional sci-fi film mm-hmm. per se, which I will touch on a little bit later. But like I said, as soon as I started watching it, I immediately liked it. And I think it's because this film opens with one of the strongest, most immersive pre-title card sequences that I've seen in a film in like recent memory. And most of it is following Robert Pattinson as the sole remaining adult crew member aboard this spaceship as he carries out like routine maintenance and day-to-day chores around the ship while also caring for an infant child. And so you're watching him like do repairs outside of the ship while he tries to comfort the baby over the comm system. I do love that. That's good. <laughs> and you see this baby like in a makeshift um, like playpen while he's trying to, you know, do his regular crew duties and things of that nature. And they're like talking to each other over the comm system <laughs> and she's watching him repair like the air conditioner and they're just having like really sweet and tender moments um as they move about this spacecraft and that's also in her cut the opening the opening shot is this long shot that's moving around this biological terrarium mm-hmm. space within the craft that's like this lush green space with all of these different plant species and there's a constant mist falling on it and you have the score with these like really interesting woodwinds over top of these images of like verdant plant life that's inside of this otherwise kind of stark spacecraft and the contrast of those images is really striking and really gorgeous. And the score and kind of the languid movement around the spacecraft where you're getting shots, you know, down the hallway and up the ladder and to the exterior, and you're getting a real sense of the space and the emptiness of this craft it just sets a very specific tone and atmosphere that permeates the movie and really elevates it. Like, however, I don't know how Claire Denis made such a penetrating tone to this movie, but it's just so deftly and expertly done. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the secrets is all of those insert shots that she uses to really establish the space and the context and it just really adds something. I can't really put my finger on it, but she does an incredible job. And at the end of that pre-title card sequence, after Rob has been like caring for the baby and making it food and doing repairs and whatnot, you see him um, like filling out the daily log that's required to maintain the ship. And then he takes a bunch of dead crew members and puts them into their spacesuits and pushes them off into the void of space. And then the title card, High Life, comes up on screen. 
and it's just so immaculate. Like I was locked in completely across that entire sequence and the pacing I think for some people might be a little bit slow, but for me, it was absolutely pitch perfect in setting the atmosphere. So I loved it. I thought it was just absolutely incredible directing. And basically that sets you up for the rest of the movie where you're getting information about how these crew members died, like what happened so as to leave Robert Pattinson as the last remaining crew member and why there's this baby on the spacecraft. And also you get snippets of Robert Pattinson's memory, memories of his childhood and his past and the crew members that he interacted with. And it's um, really interesting because the aesthetic of his childhood memories is very different from the present spacecraft memories. They're like grainy and like old film looking mm-hmm. type style of photography versus like the very crisp photography of the spacecraft mm-hmm. imagery. And I just really loved the the texture that that added to his recollections of his childhood. Mm-hmm. Even though like it's clear that the things that he's doing in real time are evoking these memories of the past. And I don't know, just, you know, I absolutely love visual storytelling and seeing the parallels between what Robert Pattinson is doing on the ship and his recollections of his childhood. And you can see why he's having that recollection in that moment. It's beautiful. I love it. (laughs) Yeah, I think the movie does a really good job or the film does a really good job of like it has to be a visual storytelling type medium because he's on the ship all by himself with a baby that doesn't like speak really or converse properly in like an adult fashion it's not like he can be narrating about his childhood so i think that it sets the stage for a lot of really nice visual storytelling like you're Mm -hmm. mentioning yeah but it like it doesn't come out of nowhere like Mm -hmm. messy exposition like it's clearly tied to Mm -hmm. something he's thinking about in the present which is uh wonderfully done and yeah so i mentioned the lighting and the cinematography and how they like really add to that immersive atmospheric quality of the film so the directors of photography were Yorick Lisso and Tomas Naumiuk, and they did just wonderful jobs. So since you've already seen it, I'll probably touch on more aspects than I normally would um, in terms of like spoiler territory, mm-hmm. even though I don't know if you can really spoil this film exactly. There's like small things, I guess, but one of the things that you learn over the course of the film is that Rob Pattinson and everyone else that was a crew member on the space mission, um, they were convicted criminals who were given life sentences and they opted to participate in this mission in lieu of serving a life term on earth in prison. And you don't learn that up front. You first see, you know, Robert Pattinson 
having these very sweet interactions with this baby and, you know, just doing normal day-to-day things. And you meet Rob Pattinson just as a normal dad, like as a normal human. Mm -hmm. And eventually down the line, you understand that he's, um, he's been convicted of murder and everyone else on the spacecraft has been convicted of some sort of terrible crime. And I think it's really important that you don't learn that information until later on, Mm -hmm. after you've already established this relationship with the characters, because you get to know them without the like stigma attached with that type of information. And I think that really adds to one of the main themes of the film, which Claire Denis has said that largely this film is about love, especially the love between Robert Pattinson and his daughter, and how that love persists, you know, across vast distances of time and space. And even though perhaps on Earth he was seen as a bad person because he you know, participated in a murder, he, in this new life of his on the spacecraft, he's a very loving father, and you would never know that just watching him on this mission. And I think that says something really interesting about the persistence of love, and how even in the most extreme circumstances, it's one of the strongest elements of humanity that can last. And I think it ties in with another theme of the movie, which is the inherent biological nature of humans. This film plays a lot on like biological motifs, you could say. I already mentioned the like the garden that they have mm-hmm. on the ship that plays like a prominent visual role, but something that people kind of like point out as um, a really salient feature of this film is that there's like a lot of kind of gross human biological things featured as well. So you basically at some point see like every bodily fluid the human body can produce in like many different contexts in this film. And it's, that's one of the things that I think really sets it apart from a lot of typical sci-fi space movies in particular, Mm -hmm. because they're often very like sterile and pristine and kind of mechanical and divorced Mm -hmm. from humans as a biological species. But this film is very much focused on humans as a biological species. Like there's reproduction and there's sex and there's like a room on the spaceship called the fuck room that's specifically for sex and there's the garden and there's dead bodies and you see like many shots of the like waste um recycling system Mm -hmm. on the ship and none of those biological realities are ignored and that's definitely something that stood out to me as setting it apart from a like a really sterile version of space travel movies, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think another fundamental element, not just of human biology or like earthbound biology, is the theme of decay. I think that goes hand in hand with the theme of the passage of time in this movie, because you see the ship that they're on 
degrading and falling apart and going into like disrepair over the course of the movie as well, because a crew member of one person can't maintain an entire spacecraft for the years and years and years that they're on this mission. So they do a really good job of orienting you to how much time has passed by showing like how much decay of the uniforms um, and like decay of like all the corridors mm-hmm. and just all of the tools and rooms on the ship that does a really good job of conveying wordlessly like how much time has passed that Rob has been on the ship raising this child. Mm -hmm. And that also kind of underlines the other aspect that I think really sets this film apart from other sci-fi space movies in that it is very small and confined in its story. Like, it is just focusing on this one crew of astronauts, and you get, like, really brief glimpses into Rob's early life. But other than that, you are just seeing these people and their interactions on the ship. Like, you're not hopping from planet to planet or world to world or galaxy to galaxy. Like, it is very confined and very focused on these human characters. And I think that's really interesting because most, you know, space films focus on how far you can go and how many different species you can meet and how wide a world can look. And this movie doesn't sort of take that bait. It uses this context of a massive universe and shows how, like, even in the expanse of space, like, hurtling toward a black hole, this is still a story about the love between a father and a daughter. Mm-hmm. And that's the same, you know, billions of miles away as it is here on Earth. And I think that's really incredible. Mm-hmm. And it shows extremely thoughtful restraint on the part of Denis. And I really really appreciated that because it can be so superficial when a movie like this is all about spectacle rather than the story of what's going on with your characters Mm -hmm. and to show that type of restraint at such a a grand scale of space and time I think is really commendable Mm -hmm. and so yeah I don't think I want to go into much more detail than that um hopefully you get an appreciation for why I love this film Mm -hmm. (laughs) based on those things. But yeah, is there anything else that stuck out to you that that you think is worth mentioning? One thing that I thought worked really well in this film, and when I haven't watched it in a couple of years, as I mentioned, or I don't know if I mentioned that before or after starting the pod, but one thing that I think back on working very well and something that struck me as very different for this sci-fi film is that... um, there was a choice whether or not to use like an anti-gravity type of special effect in this film. And they chose not to. And I think it worked really well. Um, I think that it really made you kind of relate better to like the, the, the idea that this is a story that could be happening on earth or an idea that this could be happening anywhere. Um, 
mm-hmm. as opposed to being like distracted by extra special effects and like flashy techniques. I thought that mm-hmm. it worked really well for this film and obviously there are people out there that are like, oh, well, obviously there wouldn't be gravity in space. Like, yeah, obviously. Right. um, I think that it shows how focused on the story you should be that, like, you can have this, like, suspension of disbelief. Mm -hmm. And I guess my – I just have a question. Mm -hmm. Can you remind me if the daughter is Rob's – biological daughter or if it is more of like an adopted parent situation yes um that also ties into one minor note i wanted to make as well it is his biological daughter her name is willow in the movie and her conception is very ethically fraught Mm -hmm. which is why i wanted to mention definitely if you have um, any sensitivity around like essay type things, um, certainly check out the trigger warnings for this film because there's a lot of just, you know, ethically fraught things that happen. A lot of them are through the lens of unethical scientific exploration. Mm-hmm. So I certainly wouldn't say that they're done like tastelessly, but they're not pretty and Mm -hmm. they're not they don't really spare the viewer i -hmm. guess i would say so yeah take that into consideration certainly but yes technically rob is her biological father okay yeah i couldn't remember i remembered like there being some messed up stuff happening but i couldn't remember exactly how that played out um and i think i was misremembering a later scene as well yeah juliet benosha's character she plays uh, a doctor Mm -hmm. who has also been condemned for her misdeeds on earth as she's kind of like not the flight captain but kind of the other de facto Mm -hmm. authority figure on the spacecraft because she's constantly doing these like reproductively focused experiments Mm -hmm. and she also for some reason has control over the like um, consumption of food and water for the rest of the crew so she can dose them with like sedatives mm-hmm. at her whim and she is a really strange character and I think I would have to give a lot more thought about her motivations for the things that she does exactly but at the surface level she's basically completely determined to prove that reproduction in space is a possibility mm-hmm. and she's willing to go to any means necessary to uh, make that work on this space mission mm-hmm. i really liked this film yeah i really liked it and i think if i am in interpreting the dialogue correctly i think in retrospect his crime on earth is like not the the worst one. Um, I think if I understand correctly, he, when he was a child, mm-hmm. he killed another child, his friend, because the friend drowned his dog. I believe yeah. is what happened. I think that's right. I just haven't seen it in so long. Yeah. But it's but also just right. not like explicitly stated at any yeah. point. Mm. 
Which is fine. Like, I like that I'm not certain, but I I believe that's what I, that's what I took away. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting. Here is like, this isn't like a spoiler per se, but towards the very end of the film, like across the course of the film, you have seen a lot of imagery that makes it clear that this is, you know, flight number seven, like this is craft number seven, like everyone has a seven insignia on their flight crew outfits. And there's like a huge seven on the outside of the craft that you see frequently. And toward the end of the film, as they're nearing like the black hole, they come upon craft number nine. Mm -hmm. And you can see that the exterior of the craft is identical to craft number seven. And so they're, you know, part of the same general program and therefore have docking capabilities. And this is at a point where Rob and Willow are the like ship is falling apart. And I don't know how many, how much more provisions they have and things are kind of going south because they've been going through space for such a long time. And Rob wants to explore craft number nine to see if those people can help them in any way. And he goes on to craft number nine and it's just full of dogs. Mm-hmm. It's just dogs running wild. And it's like huge dogs. One looks like a wolf. <laughs> and then there's puppies running around. Mm-hmm. And there's like wiring all over the floor. <laughs> and it's just a dog ship. He can't find any humans. <laughs> And so he goes back to the craft, and I was completely surprised by that. It was, I I never would have guessed that that ship would only have dogs on it. Yeah. And I love being surprised. And it makes me wonder what else, what what was on ship eight? I It really makes me wonder. And I think it serves a couple of purposes in that, A, it underscores kind of the brutal aspect of the fact that Rob and his whole crew are test subjects. Mm -hmm. And because of their, you know, prisoner status on Earth, they have been kind of demoted to Mm -hmm. test subject status to make them, you know, eligible for this clearly like um, a suicide mission into Mm -hmm. space and puts them on par with a ship full of dogs, essentially. I think that's one reading of that. And another one, I think it can't be a coincidence that his original crime on Earth happened because of a dog mm-hmm. and now confronted near the end of his life with a possible, possibly being saved by another craft and it's full of dogs. That has to have some tie in to mm-hmm. the the guilt that he carries from from his friend in early life. I don't know. It's just really, really rich food for thought. And I think I'll have to watch it a couple more times to firmly grasp what I think about all of these things. But that means that it's a film that I really, really like because I don't know what I think after mm-hmm. just one watch. And I'm not certain about everything after mm-hmm. just one watch, but I want to see it again because I was like emotionally and intellectually compelled. And there are deeper layers to work through mm-hmm. as I view it again and again. And to me, that just makes it awesome. Mm-hmm.
Well, yeah, I really like what you were saying about like them being on par with like a ship full of dogs, Mm -hmm. because it's even more upsetting because you think like, ethically, oh, well, they're using prisoners as their test subjects, because they actually need like, a group of disposable humans to like, operate this craft and make sure that it gets to the black hole. But then if it's a ship full of dogs, Like, the ship could get to the black hole just fine, and you realize that they really are just a ship full of dogs, and they, like, have no other purpose than just being, like, a human that goes through. Yeah. It, like, takes away the purpose that, like, you would think that they would have. It certainly takes away the agency. Mm Mm-hmm. Because no one's driving those dogs. Yeah. You know? Mm Mm-hmm. They're all just trapped. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, we're, in the end, we're all just, you know, prisoners in the grind of time. So <laughs> we're all just a ship of dogs, I think, when it comes down to it. Oh, Remy. <laughs> what a cynical worldview. <laughs> um, what's your dream scenario, pulling up to craft number nine? What's on board? <laughs> if it can't be humans. Enough gas to get back Oh, the way. Uh, Mine is definitely Rocky. <laughs> oh, yeah. Same thing. Rocky yeah. can get me home. And or Salo from Tralfamador. I'll take him, too. <laughs> or Tars. I'll go for Tars. Also good. Yeah, I have no desire to go to space. I would rather die. Oh, me like, neither. Don't I'll put be- me in the scary big sky. I'll be very sick. Oh, sure. yeah. I would also be very sick. <laughs> yeah. Oh, one wrong move. You're a goner. Yeah. Oh, boy. Anyway, high life. Highly recommend. Just excellent work by Claire Denis. Yeah. She fucking rules. Um. Also, that baby actor was really good, too. Yeah. Like, very good baby acting. I don't know how, like, I don't know who's responsible. Probably Claire. For, like, getting such good chemistry between Rob and the baby, but Mm -hmm. it's very wholesome. And, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it must be extremely frustrating to film with a baby. I know. Like, I can't imagine how difficult that was because, like, the baby is very prominently featured. Like, it's not just Mm -hmm. in, like, a couple throwaway scenes. Like, baby is a main character. And, I mean, it's just extremely well done anyway yeah i think those are all my ramblings about high life (laughs) well we're gonna get into lots of ramblings and very (laughs) disorganized thoughts about knock at the cabin um this is the new m night Shyamalan film that came out uh just a couple of weeks ago or last week two weeks ago i don't know anyways i went and saw this last week last monday with my movie going friend (laughs) and i thoroughly enjoyed the viewing experience of this film i am a huge m night Shyamalan fan um I know his movies can be pretty hit or miss for a lot of people, but I have always really liked his films and rate them very highly in my mind. And this one was definitely different for me um, in terms of like the premise of the film. It's also, I don't know if it's his first like novel adaptation, but usually he's like 
doing all of the world building and creation of the stories. But this is a story based on Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay. And it's funny because every time I would tell someone what I was going to see, I would almost say Cabin at the End of the World. But then I was like, no, that's like a book. This isn't that. And then I decided to just Google what that book was about. And I was like, oh, this is the movie I just watched. So um, I didn't realize at first that it was even an adaptation. Um, but I have not read Cabin at the End of the World. I did Wikipedia it and just to see kind of like where things deviated from the story that was told in the film. And what I will say is that I am much more satisfied with the way that M. Night uh, Shyamalan carried out this story. And I think that it is just seeing the contrast between the two storylines. I am really pleased with the way that it paints humanity in the film versus the way that it paints humanity in the um, book. Um, But the premise is very simple uh, for this film. Basically, there is a family um, that goes on vacation to a cabin. I believe that it's in the Northeast in the book, but I don't know if they say that in the film. I've only seen it once, so I'm having a hard time remembering certain details. I don't think they say it explicitly, but Mm -hmm. just the decor suggests (laughs) it's in New England to me Uh because of like the buoys you would Uh use for a lobster trap. I was like, oh Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Probably Northeast. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely giving me Northeast vibes. And so this family goes on vacation. They are a same sex couple. Um, Eric and Andrew and their daughter, Wen. Mm-hmm. I really love the opening scene where Wen is interacting with Dave Bautista's character, Leonard. And one thing I will say is that Dave Bautista fucking killed this role. I thought he did such a good job and I just found him really endearing and really genuine. And Dave Bautista's character sits down with Wen and helps her catch grasshoppers and is just like really warm and friendly. And it's just like a very ominous scene because you know, you're watching like a horror suspense type film. Yeah. And also because he's like a stranger that walked out of the woods. (laughs) Yeah. And he's a stranger that walked out of the woods, but like, it's a very strange interaction with his character right at the beginning. And he does a very good job making you feel like he is genuine and genuinely trying to endear himself to when, even though there are certain points where he knows he might be coming across as scary. I don't know. I just thought it was a very interesting way to open the film. And it definitely like sets an ominous tone because as they're having this conversation. Three additional people begin like exiting the woods nearby and they have these very ominous weapons that they're holding that are like 
shovels tied to like rakes and shit. <laughs> um, it's, it's very ominous. When runs back to the cabin, she talks to her dads and says like, there are scary people approaching the house. Don't let them in. And then they hear a knock at the cabin. The four strangers eventually make their way inside and they explain to the family that unless one of them, one of the family of three chooses to sacrifice themselves, the world will end in an apocalypse. And that's the basic premise, the basic, the rest of the movie is kind of them trying to prove that there will be these plagues that descend upon the earth and that the apocalypse is really coming. So they need to make this decision. And while the basic premise of the movie is very simple and straightforward, it it definitely gave me a lot to think about. I'm excited to watch it again. I will say that if you're sensitive to um, things like violence and death by suicide, I will note that that is definitely a topic that comes up in this film. However, I will say that the violence in this film is very tasteful and that it rarely shows the violence on screen in a direct way, which I appreciated as someone who is sensitive to those types of topics. So I definitely appreciated the the way that they chose to represent the violent acts on screen. Um, but I found the family dynamic really compelling. You get to know Eric and Andrew extremely well through the movie. You learn about their worldviews. You learn about their, the way they kind of deal with the world and how they carry themselves through the world, I suppose. Eric is a man of faith and he is really like comfortable with who he is. And he brings out a lot of really good qualities in his husband, Andrew. Andrew is a very like logical and angry and cynical person. And I think that that contrast works really well for this story because I think that the balance is really necessary to make the story work. Like you need to have the person who's more likely to believe that this apocalypse is coming. And you need to also have the cynic who is like logically thinking through all of the alternatives. So throughout the film, there are these moments where humanity is judged and a plague is brought upon the world for a certain sin. And after every judgment of humanity, one of the four strangers is killed and they turn on the television to watch the news and look for these like breaking reports of tragedies that are happening in the world that are showing the plagues upon the world. Mm -hmm. And Andrew had like one of my first thoughts when watching the first like news coverage, evidence of this like apocalypse coming. And they're like watching these like tsunamis that are occurring all over the world. And he's like pointing out, oh, they're checking their watches all the time. They are, they could have a closed loop 
television system. This could all be staged. Like they are just targeting us because of our sexuality or because of who we are. They could know us, things like that. And I think that those arguments really make you as an audience member doubt the claims and the veracity of the claims of the the strangers that are in the house. So I really liked uh, the dynamic between Andrew and Eric. And I also really like their relationship with their daughter when she is played by Kristen Sway. And I was really impressed by her performance. She's only nine years old. And I thought that she had a lot of maturity in this role. She has a lot of really, really quiet moments where she is observing the situation and like processing it. And she is not acting like a child. Um, she's like paying attention and not getting distracted and not caring that they've put on cartoons for her on the TV. And uh, she's just like really somber throughout the whole movie. And I really like her being able to analyze the danger of the situation and act accordingly because she's definitely like someone I would trust <laughs> to be in that situation with me. And she's like taking cues really well. Like her character is taking cues from her parents really well. And they kind of underestimate her and her like role in the family. I really liked her performance as well. I mm -hmm. thought it was really good child acting for sure. And I also agree. I liked that she had a certain level of competency mm -hmm. that was not frustrating. Like mm -hmm. she was not the weak link in the, yeah. in the family unit, as you might expect from just like a small child. Yeah. And that was really satisfying to watch. Mm -hmm. Just for context, have we discussed that the three, or sorry, the four strangers that arrive at the cabin and demand the sacrifice are there because they've all seen oh, no. converging visions? Yes, that's something I meant to touch on. So yeah, the reason that all of these strangers have kind of converged or the reason that they give verbally to the family is that they all saw the same visions of the world ending in tragedy and they are like drawn to this cabin and they say that they didn't know who would be at the cabin that weekend just that that family would be responsible for saving the world <laughs> he's being very loud i'm not sure why <laughs> So this idea of visions and like world destruction really appeals to, or like it doesn't appeal to, but it, um, it is a weak point for Eric, the man of faith in this situation, I would say. Like he is not a cynic. He is someone who wants to do the right thing. And of course he doesn't like take them at their word initially, but the more like proof he sees, the more um, his like defenses kind of break down. And um, Eric's performance was really good as well. He, the actor that plays Eric is um, Jonathan Groff, who has been in a whole host of things. He's well known for his um, performance in Mindhunter. And he was also the love interest in Frozen, 
I believe. <laughs> yeah, he voice acted the love interest in Frozen. That's funny. But uh, I just thought his performance was really good. I think, like, in the flashbacks, you get a really good idea of um, just, like, what a lovely person Eric is and how much, like, how deeply he loves his family. And there's, like, a really lovely scene where they're adopting Wen. And uh, I just... I love seeing him love the world and love like this hard, angry man that just has been hurt by the world. And I just love their relationship and I love how much they love each other. I really like all of the flashbacks that M. Night incorporated Mm -hmm. that gave more texture and background to their relationship as a couple and as a family. Yeah. I thought those really added something special. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because, I mean, the movie starts right at the f- start of the confrontation between the strangers and this family. So mm-hmm. we have no backstory other than what you can glean from uh, the dialogue between these two different parties. So I think in some way it was definitely necessary to have some level of flashbacks to just get a sense of who these men are and why they represent these these viewpoints that are diverging over Mm -hmm. the course of the film. Yeah. One other thing that I really liked about the premise that the strangers present is that the family has to choose amongst themselves who dies and that the strangers cannot choose for them and they cannot uh, perform the act for them. They have to like kill within the family, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And, I love that it simultaneously lowers the stakes and increases the stakes. Because at that point, you realize that in in a sense, you have very little to fear from the four strangers. Like they are going to go through their process. And regardless of what happens, they will all be dead at the end of this weekend at the cabin and it's up to the family to choose what happens to the fate of their family and also the world. And I really like that that allows you to focus on the moral question at hand and less on the strangers themselves and like watching them and distrusting them in, in the sense that like they're going to hurt the people in this family. Right. Um, so they like stand in much more as a source of information yeah. to believe or disregard rather than a direct threat. I think mm-hmm. you're definitely correct. And just for clarity, the reason why they are dying is because for each of the four judgment like checkpoints, one of the four strangers has to die mm-hmm. like as part of this vision prophecy. And so the other strangers kill off each subsequent stranger. Mm-hmm. So I think that some people may not like this film in terms of like it being more of a traditional M. Night Shyamalan film, just because you're not going to get like the jump scares or like a really good spook. Like the twist in this film is that there is no twist. It just presents 
everything as it is. And it allows you to kind of make your decisions on who's lying and who's telling the truth in real time with the family. And I really enjoyed that aspect of the film. Like you said, each judgment is paired with one of the deaths of the strangers. And they're killed by the remaining strangers. And I think that the order of the deaths was really interesting because um, I think that they were kind of decided on whether or not this is like in the visions or if they decided amongst themselves, it's unclear like how much the strangers decided amongst themselves, like what order things would go in. But the strangers are very interesting. Um, Rupert Grint, who is most well known for his role in the Harry Potter films as Ronald Weasley, plays this extremely unlikable character. He's like very off-putting. He's not like friendly and genuine like the other three of the strangers are. Like they do this kind of like getting to know you icebreaker <laughs> thing at the beginning. And uh Rupert Grint's character, um I forget his name. Redmond. Redmond is like very clearly not not here to do getting to know you games and make them feel comfortable. He's like uptight, uh, not uptight, but he's like very high strung and um, he seems like nervous and angry and like he doesn't want to be there. Um, and I think that his death being first was strategic of the four strangers. There's Rupert Grint's character, Redmond, um, then we have Adrian, who is played by Abby Quinn. She is like a single mother who, um, saw these visions, but she is kind of just like a kid almost. Like she's just very, she seems like inexperienced and genuine in that way. Then we're introduced the second to last to die is Sabrina, who is a nurse and clearly has a lot of love for her job and for um, caring for other people. And then finally, we're left with Dave Bautista, Dave Bautista's character, Leonard, who is a teacher and coach for many, many children and loves those children and wants them to have this like better world. I think that them passing in that order is important because there are people in this group who are likely to lose their will or bail or run away. Um, and I think that Redmond and Adrian are the most weak-willed of the group, and Sabrina and Leonard are the more strong-willed of the group, and it becomes harder and harder to commit these acts as you reduce the number of people, obviously, and I think that Leonard um, is the most committed to the cost and is extremely genuine and uh, truly has to believe what he's doing because he has to take responsibility for his own action in that moment. And I think that his 
death is like the most painful death that you witness. I just think that, yeah, it's a really interesting group of people brought brought together by these visions that would not normally interact with one another. But in the same vein, I think that the emotional beats in this film were done really well. I saw this in the theater and was crying and had tears streaming down my face at the theater. And I just, I just think it was done extremely well. And the emotional beats were spread throughout the film in a way that, uh, didn't make it like unpleasantly emotional for me to watch. But just because you like, you understand the premise of what the film is, it's not pretending to be anything else. You know, people are going to die. You know that sad things are coming. And the fact that like the twists just don't really come is, I don't know. I just found it effective in spite of not being surprised at what was coming, if that makes sense. But yeah, I guess that's all I have on the plot. I wish that my thoughts had been a little bit more well organized with that, but we can talk more about the plot if you have other things to add on that. But um, I have just like some other things that I really liked about the film that are more like tangential to the plot and not like specifically about anything that happens in the film. No, I mean, I think you covered a lot of ground. I wouldn't. I have just like some things that stuck out to me in this film. I noted that I really liked that the movie was very focused on people's faces. Like the, yeah, the like way extremely. the movie was <laughs> extremely. Yeah. So they were like these extreme close-ups that are like really uncomfortable to very. watch in a theater, especially because like the screen is so big and you're just mm-hmm. like looking so intensely into this one person's face for such a long period of time. Yeah. And with every cut, you're getting even tighter on their yeah. face. Mm-hmm. And there's like just so much intensity in this film and that is brought to light by like the the way the filming of these people's faces is done and you can't hide the actors have to be so in character like they can't hide behind a cut and like everything has to be so on and i think it also adds to the genuine it's almost like too intensely genuine in certain parts like when you're interacting with leonard I think that the openness of his face and being so like close to his face adds to that like intense feeling of the fact that he's just like a very genuine person. It's very vulnerable. And I like that at least the majority of this group isn't afraid of being vulnerable. Like that's kind of why they're there. And that's kind of why they've been chosen to be there. And I really liked that. Um, I thought that the special effects were very good. Um, I really enjoyed like the disaster news footage. I, I've always been like a big fan of like disaster films, like Mm. Twister or anything (laughs) like that. It convinced me that it was news footage and I thought it was just pulled off really well for me. And the last thing that I noted 
um, which was actually the first thing that I noted in the film, was that I really love opening credits and I really enjoy like the nostalgia of watching like executive producer so-and-so like pop up before like you even get into the movie like before the title card before anything and like you're getting all of this really nice b-roll and I just (laughs) find that like so nostalgic and uh like it just you don't really see that in films anymore, um, but it makes me feel like I'm, like, sitting in front of my TV at, like, age six and, like, watching a VHS tape. It's just, like, really special, and I didn't realize how much I missed that until I saw, like, the opening credits for the movie, and I don't know. It just felt really nostalgic and, like, set a tone for me in the theater. Mm-hmm. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, overall, I really liked this film, and I think it's been generally well-received. It's got almost a 70% on Rotten Tomatoes, and I think critics generally liked liked the film. I mean, it's, like I said, you're not getting your usual M. Night Shyamalan twist. You're not getting, like, any real horror aside from the horror of potential apocalypse and the horror of everything else that happens but it's not like a scary film but i just can't get the way that it made me feel out of my mind like i just was watching it and feeling every emotion in real time with this family i was just very impressed by this film did you like the m night cameo I did like the M. Night cameo. <laughs> I liked it too. I think it might have been his best one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because at first I was like, is that him? And then I was oh, like, yeah, him. it has to be him. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I really enjoyed this film. After the film was over, my friend and I just like looked at each other and I like still had tears running down my face. And she was oh, like, I, I loved that. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was definitely like a good, very good and emotional. And I really like the scene in the treehouse. I think Wen's line of dialogue in the treehouse was my favorite line from the film. Yeah. I think it was the most unexpected line for me, but it fits with everything you know about Wen, um, and her character and her ability to process what's going on with them. Mm-hmm. But it hit me, like, the hardest of any of the moments, I think. I just, like, mm-hmm. I expected her to not understand and her, like, immediate ability to understand what has happened is just, like, really profound. I think it's definitely my favorite M. Night movie. It definitely had the most meaning for me. Hmm. But, yeah, I'd love to know exactly why the name was changed. And like what the story behind that is, and why it's not called a cabin at the or cabin at the end of the world, and it's called a knock at the cabin. I don't know. Maybe it was just too many words. That's what I thought, but it also makes me think that maybe they didn't want to tie it directly to cabin at the end of the world because they did change the outcome so much. Maybe I don't maybe. know. I don't like. Know. Maybe it's like a based on this i don't know i don't know because they even 
like chose not to put door on the end of it, <laughs> which I found confusing because for months I was like, oh, it's going to be knock at the cabin door. <laughs> That's coming up soon. And then I was like, no, it's called knock at the cabin. That's strange. I could have sworn door was on there <laughs> at some point, but no, it's like, no. It's a hard title to just remember. Four, just four <laughs> words, Max. That's all they'll do. Yeah. Do you want to hear a funny story from my theater viewing experience? Yeah, <laughs> I do. At the cabin. So I went back to the big AMC uh-huh. that I started going to. Uh, Will went with me, actually. Oh, good. Which is a rare, rare occasion. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really wanted to show him that theater and uh, that neighborhood and stuff. So, And he's, you know, generally interested in checking out the film. Mm-hmm. And so we went together, and <laughs> we were sitting kind of toward the back of the theater on mm-hmm. the end of a row, and we had just, you know, watched the entire movie, essentially, which was, for me, like, very suspenseful. Like, suspense was the principal emotion that I was feeling mm-hmm. the whole time. And like you said, it's a, it's basically a disaster movie, mm-hmm. and that tone certainly permeates the final act of the Mm -hmm. film like it's a very um a somber tone towards the end and in the final scene like you mentioned the diner scene Mm -hmm. at the very end of the movie this fucking lady (laughs) walked up to us from like the entrance to the our theater uh-huh. walked up to Will and me and was like, Is this 80 for Brady? <laughs> no, oh, man. Oh, God. And does Will was just like, like, 80 for Brady? <laughs> fucking does it? Of course it fucking doesn't. And Will was just like, No. <laughs> and then the movie was over. I would have paid so much money to see Will say no. That fucking lady, she had the final line of dialogue in our screening of Nap at the Cabin. I was just like, are you out of your fucking mind? The lady, does this look like that movie? Oh, it was fucking incredible. Oh, no. I think about that and laugh like once a day now. I ask Will all the time, is this lady for Brady? It was a timing like out of a sitcom it was insane (laughs) hilarious oh incredible stuff incredible stuff at the amc (laughs) thanks nicole kidman oh boy that's so good well i think that we're gonna have some interesting uh parallels here me too i was writing a lot while you were talking i have yeah i have a few key salient overlaps in our friend diagram (laughs) do you want to start us off kat with what these two things have in common sure so one of the things i wrote down was that for both of these films you kind of have an unexpected crew of characters so in high life, you have this like group of criminals that are responsible for carrying out a really important mission to a black hole. And then in Knock at the Cabin, (laughs) I still have such a hard time with the title of that film. Um, 
you have this group of people who are mostly not criminals. Um, and they are carrying out these like pretty ominous roles and pretty like violent and terrible tasks. And they are not the people that you would expect to carry out those kinds of tasks. And so that was one of my main ones that I had thought of. Mm -hmm. My first one was that uh, in essence, both of these stories are ultimately about love. Mm -hmm. Certainly, especially like familial love Mm -hmm. and paternal love. And that's something uh, that really is a great display of humanity in high life. And it's something that plays very much into, you know, the decision making that has to be done in Knock at the Cabin. And yeah. I, th- I guess, like, based on my reading of both of them, that's one of the core themes for both of these movies. Absolutely. Another similarity that I had was that both of these films you mentioned i think you used the word small and confined Mm -hmm. um they're both like confined to these very small set very much so so they're Mm -hmm. like either in a really small cabin or really small like aircraft spacecraft i suppose and a lot of the texture is coming from like flashbacks to their lives and I think that the flashbacks were also done very artfully in both of these films and really nicely. I agree. Yeah, my next point was that there was a really good use of flashbacks to Mm -hmm. learn more about the main characters in both Mm -hmm. of these films. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah, but you're right. That is is an effect of the the confined spaces in Mm -hmm. terms of, like, the demands of the storytelling. Um, My final point is just... Good dads. <laughs> good dads. They hurt. There's such good Lots dads. of good dads. Uh, who is your favorite dad? Daddy Andrew or Daddy Eric? Oh, for sure. Oh, man. Daddy Eric. I love Daddy Eric. Mine was Daddy Andrew, of course. <laughs> yeah. I just love, like, the scene by the lake where they're, like, getting ready to jump in. and mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> Eric, like, almost jumps in, and, like, it's almost very impulsive, but then he, like, takes off his shoes and, like, puts his phone and his keys in his shoes and yeah. then jumps in, and I I related so much in that moment to <laughs> Daddy Eric. I was like, yes. yes, this man. I love it when Dave Bautista comes to the door and starts speaking to them, and Jonathan Groff, like, replies, <laughs> and Dave Bautista's like, is this Daddy Andrew or Daddy Eric that I'm speaking to? <laughs> That's some fucking primo dialogue. It was so good. It was it was just hilarious. Really Dave Bautista is really impressing me lately. I really liked him in Glass Onion, and I especially really liked him in this film. And I don't think I've seen him in anything else, but man, do I hope he keeps fucking killing it, because mm-hmm. I love him. <clears throat> You've seen him in Dune. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a Harkonnen, right? Yeah, the scary guys. Oh, but I don't like the scary guys. I want yeah. to be lovely and protect. Yeah, I think either on Twitter or in an interview somewhere in the past couple of weeks, I saw that he has like, declared a desire to um, take more roles that aren't 
centered on his physical presence. And I love that. More character driven. And I think I, I really hope he gets that opportunity because I think, um, whether people liked or disliked this film, the most agreed upon opinion that I saw was that Dave Bautista gave a great performance. That was by far the most, the biggest yeah. takeaway that I think everyone had from the movie. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so I really hope he gets more opportunities like that. Yeah. He's in Guardians of the Galaxy as well. Yes. I don't know if you've seen that. He's I the, forgot like, the, he was in that. Drax. He's big yellow guy, I think. Is he yeah. yellow or orange or a I different think color? He's purple. Fuck. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to Google it quick. What's he's not green lady. He's no. not blue lady. Oh, I, he's he is green and red. What? He's green and red. How is he both? How was I so wrong? Thanks for joining us this week on Friend Diagram. Thank you to Tyler Seek for the creation of our intro and outro music. Did you take any of our recommendations? Have any thoughts on the show? Let us know at frienddiagrampod at gmail.com, and we might read your email on a future episode. If you can, please take a moment to rate and review the show on your podcast app of choice, and we'll see you back here, same place, next week. Bye for now.